Is there a future where The Sopranos will one day be lost by newer generations? Perhaps in the oversaturation of streaming services and critically acclaimed TV like Tears and Rain. Welcome to Josh Hasn't Seen The Sopranos. I'm Jared Backens and I'm joined by my two millennial co-hosts, Drew Madden and Josh Fink, as we go through each episode to uncover if The Sopranos should still be considered the best. It's good to be in something from the ground floor. Even though some consider 2020 the golden age of TV, I get the feeling we came in too late for that. We came in at the end. The best is over. Josh hasn't seen The Sopranos. Here we go. All right. Welcome to episode eight of Josh Hasn't Seen The Sopranos. Are you comfortable, Drew? I am comfortable on my uh, low cobra. <laughs> <laughs> I've switched uh, switched spaces in my recording studio, so hopefully this is... Uh, Hopefully the sound is a little better. We still might be able to hear your dad just as loudly as before, though. Everyone will, always. <laughs> so this week, this is a bit of a meta episode of The Sopranos, I thought. They talk about characters and arcs. And I want to at least define for us beforehand who our, our favorite characters are in TV shows, what makes them good characters. Um, I think there's a couple different ways to think about this. There's characters like Walter White, who clearly, at least to some extent, changes over the course of the, the whole series. And then there's other characters who maybe their changes are more subtle, or you get like someone like the characters of Seinfeld, who despite everything that happens to them, they they never learn from their mistakes too. So I want to see who our favorite characters are and how we define or what makes those, those characters enjoyable to us. Game of Thrones, we always talk about that. I think a fan favorite is definitely like Tyrion Lannister. Bring some comedic relief, but also, you know, he kind of changes and it grows throughout the show. Uh, and I think that's cool to watch. I even like Cersei Lannister just for how evil she is. I mean, like, probably not a strong word, but enjoyed watching. Does she change over the course of the series? I think she becomes a little more hardened. Um, yeah. You could argue that no, she doesn't, but I feel like she does kind of devolve a little bit. But I really enjoyed watching those. And then most recently, I've really been into the show Billions. And there's a few characters in that show I really like. Uh, the two main characters, Bobby Axelrod and Chuck Rhodes, the attorney, I like them, but at the same time, they just succumb to their fatal flaw like every season. So it's kind of annoying. It's like, you need to learn. Oh, interesting. So th- I've, I've only seen like one episode of Billions too. So if they didn't succumb to that each season though, would you? Would they be some of your favorite characters? Probably. I mean, Paul Giamatti's character, Chuck Rhodes, he, he kind of evolves a little bit, but there's still you know, they're one piece away from being perfect, which kind of makes the show in a way, but at the same time becomes a little repetitive. And then there's a uh, a little sidekick, not sure who he's played by, but it's Axelrod's, uh, for those who haven't seen the show, he's a uh, investment banker, runs his own investing firm, and his CFO is just provides great comic relief and great one-liners. And so he's, he's really fun to watch. And he's just has no morals, wants to make as much money as possible, but it's fun watching him do it. So <laughs> I'd say those are probably some of my favorite characters. And and I think we came back to this before, but like not, they don't have to be likable or you can enjoy watching them. They can be a delight to watch, but they could be someone that you would want nothing to do with in real life, I think. Oh, exactly. I think that that makes it a lot of fun. Drew, how about you? Who are your favorite characters and what, what draws you to them? Um, I really like Stan's dad in South Park. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's an everyman. I really liked um, Matthew McConaughey's character in True Detective. He doesn't really have like an arc as much as like a roller coaster of, you know, his character, but I really enjoyed him. Let's talk about that for a second. So spoilers for season one of True Detective. Do you think, does Matthew McConaughey's character change over the course of the series? I mean, absolutely. But 
he, he becomes more optimistic by the end, right? He was, he's very cynical and but he'd be pessimistic about things or he'd have his, about humanity in general, but his touch with death at the end be, makes him become more optimistic, right? Yeah, but it's it's just hard to, hard to tell the arc when it's going like previously in time and then back mm-hmm. to like, you know, him with that ponytail and mustache, just like crushing light beers and cigarettes. <laughs> and then, well, and then yeah, true. his character does arc. Time is a flat circle. Did you, <laughs> did you, did you even watch the show? <laughs> any others i don't know i mean my favorite show is the wire but a lot of the good characters were really hard to like who's the who's the uh cop that turns into a teacher that you end up really liking oh presbaluski yeah presbaluski i mean you really dislike him in the beginning and then he becomes like a stand-up you know a good teacher yeah his his character changes a lot and And sometimes I think characters in in TV shows and movies change too much and it seems illogical at a certain point. I'm not sure if he's a good example or not. I mean, he kind of goes through a lot over the course of the series. I was trying to think of movies too and the types of characters we're more drawn to as viewers. And I was thinking of like, I was thinking of the Godfather because that's so closely related to the Sopranos. Michael Corleone's character, obviously he has this big arc over the course of the first Godfather film. But once we look at his character, he doesn't change that much. He's always, he's always extremely intelligent. He's always a loner. It just took a catalyst to make him make those decisions and eventually become the dawn of this crime family. So my, my take is I, I think people relate more to a character that has subtler changes. If they see these these huge changes in a character, I don't think that's very close to life. Josh, do you think a character like Walter White who changes over the course of that whole series is more relatable or the cast of Seinfeld is more relatable? I'd have to go with cast of Seinfeld's more relatable just because they're dealing <laughs> with more everyday situations. Um, but Not for um, me. Walter White, 100%. <laughs> You're, you are living in a van building cooking some math. So. <laughs> if, you take, if you take out the content of their situations, would that still be the case? Like I, I see, I see George Kramer, Elaine, Jerry, as they constantly face problems, things that they should learn from in one episode, they feel like, or they seem like they might learn from it even over the course of a few episodes, but then they, they don't learn from it in the end. Well, I, I guess that's a good point. If you remove the like high level legal activity, Breaking Bad would basically just be, you know, a normal family struggling with making paying the bills and you know they have to hang out with their brother-in-law who's kind of annoying and yeah i mean (laughs) drive a shitty car that you don't like yeah that's probably more relatable to to most people um uh, but it's kind of hard to cut (laughs) cut out the obvious um yeah and then with seinfeld i i was kind of whenever i watch the show i always think it's kind of unrelatable in a sense they're all what mid-30s single all just hanging out all the time it's like (laughs) I don't really know that many mid thirties people who just pop by, you know, like, Hey, come over to my apartment. Like they don't even call. They just pop in. It's like, you want to go see a movie? Yeah. And I don't know. There's just, there's almost <laughs> that was before cell phones though. That's true. I mean, they had to do the pop in. It seemed like they had a lot of time on their hands for sure. Jerry was the comic. Kramer didn't have a job, but yeah, Lane and George would take shifts off from there. Well, I guess George was unemployed for several seasons. I think. <laughs> yeah. The summer of George. <laughs> I, I, I think that, that those types of characters are more relatable, but maybe they're not. Well, Seinfeld might be a bad example. I was going to get characters that don't change might be, I think, an argument is they might be harder to harder to watch and people aren't as drawn to them. At least I don't know. And that's how that's how I'm trying to explain, like, why shows like Breaking Bad or Game of Thrones are just so exciting for people is because these these characters change in an obvious way before your before your eyes. One of my 
favorite shows is Mad Men and, and Don Draper. He he does have his own arc, but it's much subtler. And he's a lot like the characters of Seinfeld in many ways, where he goes through a situation that you think he should learn from, but then makes falls back into those same mistakes again. And I think that in itself is very relatable as people who repeat these same mistakes over and over again without having, you know, this obvious redemption or obvious change and things like that. So I guess we have an idea of at least we've talked about a few of these characters. I want to start relating those more and more to characters of Sopranos. Like this episode is very meta talking about Christopher's looking for his arc. Starting off in, in what each of our cores of this this one episode was. Drew, you want to go first in this case? I got um, systemic Italian depression. <laughs> I mean, I guess you, you, you see it with Tony. Um, you see it with Christopher. Mm-hmm. You know, it's definitely being in the creative field. And he's like, I'm going to write like a screenplay or whatever. <laughs> it's like, like, okay, you know, 10 more years before you might see, you know, five to 10 more years before you might see like any progress. And he's like all depressed and it's, <laughs> it's very obvious. And then even the like Meadow and Anthony Jr., you can already see, you know, like having the police come into your house has got to mm-hmm. be traumatic. And you're seeing it with Livia and just the whole family. So Josh, how about you? I'm going more surface level, but just uh, Christopher wants attention because <laughs> the whole episode is, they kind of throw threw me for a loop at the end where, you know, it's like, oh man, he's really depressed. He actually cares, you know, about the bad things that he's doing. And then in reality, it's like, oh, he just wanted to be noticed. He wanted basically his, uh, the atonement for his sins is him becoming famous for his crimes. And I mean, he's still just a footnote, but that was good enough for him. Do you think he's, that ended his depression though, or that was just a small win for him? Well, I think he was looking for purpose. Um, I think for a long time he, he felt like, oh, I'm starting to do the right thing. I should be moving up the ladder, starting to become a made man. And I think uh, when he whacked the, email guy uh, email. Can't, can't remember his name and uh, you know he thought that that would be kind of a step forward and people would recognize him but there was like now you got a, a lot more dues to pay and i think mm-hmm. he, he kind of finds this as a rite of passage being mentioned with with the crew so i think the purpose is going to help lift him out of the depression i don't know if that's going to be forever um, at least in the short term he's going to be more enjoyable to be around so i had i just called it hanging a lantern uh do you guys remember i i kind of talked about what hanging a lantern meant in one of the first episodes, you guys remember what that was? I can't remember now. The British are coming. <laughs> exactly. It's Paul Revere um, warning people. No, it's <laughs> so TVs or TV books or movies will do this. If, if someone, one example of it, if someone does something illogical and the writer or creators are afraid that the audience is going to lose, uh, lose focus or think that, Oh, there's no way that would happen. So the way, the way the writer will handle that is they'll they'll get ahead of it and a character will say you know i don't know why i'm doing this um let me try to think of an example uh this kind of works so one example have you guys seen blade runner yeah josh josh has drew i'm gonna guess you haven't i just watched the second one (laughs) and i was watching part of the first one it was on tv and then i just watched the the new one with ryan gosling (laughs) sorry josh what did you say yeah i've only seen the original Okay. Yeah. The original is super good. So spoilers for the end of Blade Runner. Drew, you can cover your ears if you want. But at the end, the 
the android saves Harrison Ford, grabs him, the same android that Harrison Ford's been chasing to retire this whole movie. And what that might seem, that might seem illogical to the audience. They're like, well, that just broke what we we knew about the androids. And Harrison Ford mentions it, I think, in the voiceover. He says, you know, to this day, I don't know why he saved me. And then he, he speculates some things. But that's an example of, oh, the audience might not be behind it, but you know, the writers are getting ahead of that. So I thought of this episode as two ways that the the writers were trying to get ahead of it. They were trying to touch on the fact that a lot of the characters in The Sopranos are kind of like people in real life where they might make some of the same mistakes over and over again. And, you know, Chris attributes this to, you know, what's my arc? Do I have an arc in life? And it's, it's no, it's because real life is is really difficult and people tend to fall into those same mistakes again and again and again before they before they're able to correct them. So that's one. And then also the um, hanging a lantern on the backlash that the show might get around negative Italian stereotypes. This episode kind of addressed that maybe too obvious, but I thought that was a big piece of the episode as well. Definitely agree. It's, it's funny they uh, mentioned, you know, kind of what we were talking about in one of the previous uh, podcast episodes, you know, why are mob films and mob stories like so in the pop culture of the United States and they kind of mentioned it's like well, there's only 5,000 Italians in the mob and there's other what right. are they, 20 million <laughs> not so they're kind of touching on the same topic yeah it's it, that's funny and I, I didn't remember that this episode I guess got into it that much too and I think Melfi has a line where crime is just overrepresented in in movies maybe American movies but all sorts of of criminals or gangsters like we'll see probably you know mexican-american or central american gangsters more than we see the millions that aren't in that form of life and i think just because that's more exciting for people might be might be a reason big picture of the episode drew do you have any any thoughts on it did you enjoy it i did no i, I really like this one I, i'd hate chris as a character <laughs> but i think that's the whole point you didn't feel for him at all no <laughs> As a short answer, I mean, I guess doesn't sound I, like Josh does either. No, I was I was annoyed by him as well. I I did think about like when the cops come into Tony Soprano's house and mm-hmm. like kind of like when there's these like strange moments with like if your family has ever like gotten into a a fight with someone or a yelling argument and you're kind of like okay now I'm on like my family's team you know I've never had like cops bust into my house but you know everybody's <laughs> had that moment where like someone does something or there's like an argative moment and you're kind of like core up with your family. Mm. Yeah. I was just thinking about the effects of that on Meadow and Anthony jr. It's gotta be devastating. Josh, how about you? Any, I, I actually really liked the episode as well. I liked how they kind of went into the mentality of Christopher, even though I'm not the biggest fan of his, uh-huh. um, it was kind of cool to see how he, how he thinks and, and operates. Um, even though it seemed short lived. Uh, and then it was interesting watching how all the mobsters, you know, they got tipped off and they kind of <laughs> just went to work. They're like, all right, time to hide all the evidence. And I, I thought that was kind of cool. And, you know, push comes to shove. They, they know what to do and very curious to see what the fallout is legally. Uh, but it almost seemed like the FBI weren't too serious with Tony Soprano, but like he mentioned at the end, you know, he's just being nice. Cause that's his, that's his ploy. So I'm waiting to see what follows and, I'd say this is probably one of the more the first episode where I've actually been like hooked to really want to watch the next one. Um, oh, nice! I wouldn't say it's a cliffhanger, but I'm kind of like, okay, I want to see how this gets resolved. God help a writer if they have a cliffhanger. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it ranks highly among the episodes we've watched so far. Definitely. 
So like the like the other episodes, a lot of the episodes, this one had four storylines going. And like I've talked to people about like the different structure of like the Sopranos versus other TV series. And people are like, oh, it's don't you not like that because it's so structured or you have this formula and literally every other show movie book follows a similar formula like if you don't notice it it, it still exists there but there are four storylines can you guys think of them definitely christopher either battling with his you know past or chris chris had <laughs> second puberty <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, so his struggle to find meaning through writing getting over his ptsd all of that that's one of the main storylines uncle junior taking you know taking control but still not really having the respect of of the family and the interesting dynamic that Tony plays along with that, where kind of Tony recognizes that Junior needs to be making the the moves, but Mm -hmm. uh, the other capo is like, oh, Tony, what do you think? He's like, what the fuck are you asking me for? Yeah. (laughs) So I thought that was an interesting little dynamic play. It's like, dude, keep your cool. We know Junior's supposed to be the boss. Like he's literally right here (laughs) when the other capos are just like, oh, Tony, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. So I I tie that into the whole federal indictment storyline. So that dynamic between Junior and Tony and then Tony having to take the precautions and hide everything at the retirement home. Those are the A and B, those two that you mentioned. So those ones pretty much hold the same weight pretty much throughout. And then there's also a C and D, which are the either comedic runners or just like those side stories that you hear. Can you guys think of those? Uh, Maybe Junior and Livia talking about Tony's mental health psychiatry appointments yeah so that'd be like the d one that just had that one beat where livia tells uncle junior that tony's seeing a psychiatrist so if she didn't tell him this episode josh i think you mentioned it or we talked about it last time as viewers we'd be really frustrated i think it's like why is it taking so long she knows information like that can't be held in a character too long without the viewer getting upset so that was a good move to make that happen this episode there's one more big one that you guys haven't Melfi's uh you know, she introduces her ex-husband and and her internal battle with Tony Soprano as a um, patient. Absolutely. Do you guys think shows like The Sopranos perpetuate a bad stereotype for Italian Americans? Josh, what do you think? I don't really think so. I mean, I don't think of all Italian Americans as mobsters. I kind of separate the two. So definitely see Tony Soprano and all the poor actions as, as just the actions of a mobster. Uh, I don't see it as equate it to oh you're a mobster and you're italian therefore all italians are mobsters and bad drew how about you i don't know i really struggle with this one because <laughs> it's like you know it's it's a story it's fake yeah and i don't know because i'm not italian american but i think if they lean into unfair stereotypes too much that could be that could be detrimental but i don't think a story like i see it as more of Wow, these are really bad men or and women. These are bad people. And I don't associate like, oh, that that means Italian Americans are bad people. I'm like, these you do not want to be like these people. <laughs> but maybe that's maybe that's our generation. Like maybe our parents or grandparents who saw different ethnic groups more divided, you know, you you see things much more mixed than they used to be. I wonder if they see it more as like, oh, that is really harmful for Italian Americans. I saw on, so as you guys know, I'm trying to like bring in Twitter followers, which is just like a very foreign thing to me for Josh hasn't seen the Sopranos. Getting invested in social media is always, always really enjoyable. (laughs) Good for your mental health. (laughs) Any emotional investment in social media is just, just fantastic. Mental health is a serious issue. Like things like Twitter should not exist. It is it is absurd just like how much people will try to tweet like one ups at each other and negative comments on things like that. 
like there's a platform there that you could have some really helpful discourse. And I'm trying to link articles and things like that into our, our Twitter page. And I think that's really, that's really helpful. But like these attacks at each other and, and all of this are just so dumb. And it's like, no wonder people go crazy with social media. Yeah. And Twitter's like the worst way to communicate, you know, in 100, <laughs> 140 characters or whatever it is now. It's like, oh, you're really going to express an opinion or, you know, a well thought out opinion with some, some facts. It's like, no, this is, <laughs> these are my thoughts. And if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. Oh, and also an idiot. Exactly. And it's, fat it's, and it's ugly. <laughs> yeah and by the way but any, I, saw, I saw this one person on on twitter who made this comment like we need people like uh the cast of the sopranos to stand up to to all the craziness in the country and you know whatever you think of what's going on in the country i was like did this person see the show were they just seeing <laughs> tony and these people as like this positive like oh these strong men are are standing up for their family it's like no dude if you unleash tony on the country he would find a way to like monetize it somehow and destroy everyone's businesses or like, um, and I think a lot of people though, like that exists. They see the Sopranos at face value where they're just like, Oh, Tony is just so strong, says what he wants, does what he wants. And, and I, I don't know. I, I see it as the complete op. I see it as just like a, a mask of like, it looks like this guys of strong men in this show, but it's really like the toxicity these people have on the world. No, I definitely agree. And I mean, I think him him going through the whole counseling session kind of brings that to light. It's like, oh, you think he's like this? He's not, you know, like a 1960s macho character where, you know, they, they don't say much. They get the job done and they go home to their wife. He like is show, seeing the effects of his, his own work and therefore he's like seeking out help with the therapist. I love the contrast that, this, that the show shows about that. And I don't want to make it seem like if you're, opening up about your emotions and going to therapy is what makes you weak. I think it's the opposite. I think that side of Tony is actually a more human side of Tony. Like this other stereotype of the strong man might not quite exist to the extent that, that people think, at least my impression. Well, on that note, we'll think of like women being like emotional sometimes or dramatic or, you know, but then look at Tony Soprano, like how many times does he get dramatic throughout an episode where he just like loses his shit right the stereotype is oh women are so dramatic and it's like no you actually are seeing this very dramatic person before your very eyes but you're just shielded to that for some reason yeah i mean he's becoming emotionally stronger by going to therapy and being more (laughs) slightly more zen zen version of tony (laughs) well and if you think about it they kind of flip the stereotypes right or um they always talk about oh if a woman is outspoken or loud in the workplace they're either like bitchy or bossy but in this show you know you have tony kind of being bitchy and dr melfi being just stoic and calm like Mm -hmm. are you done now where it's like in in other shows or in other portrayals it's usually the opposite josh do you think people are are noticing the switch as much or they're still seeing tony as that i can't think of the right words but i keep saying like stereotypical strong man I think they make it pretty clear that like he's mm-hmm. not the prototypical strong man and you know his outbursts are are pretty childish so I I, th- I, th- I think most people would notice but I'm sure there's a, a group of people who don't and just see him as oh this you know super macho tough guy who's mobster does what he wants gets what he wants type of thing all right so let's get let's get into the episode here uh it opens up with the Drew you were talking about this earlier but Chris's dream Really, it's shot like really beautifully. Like he's sitting at the at the table at Satriali's and he's spacing out and he's having these this PTSD episode reflecting back to the the first and 
only person he's killed, Emil. So he killed Emil in the pilot episode, and he's feeling some sort of regret and PTSD. So he's he's haunted by this guy, and then Chris wakes up. We go to one of the Capo's daughter's weddings. So it's Larry Boy Barisi is the Capo. It's his daughter's wedding. But this is when when word gets out about the federal indictments. So Larry Boy had word from one of his contacts that federal agencies are building a case against people in the crime family. They don't quite know who or who the strongest cases are against, but this is when there's this pretty funny scenario of all these capos and mob guys figuring out like, oh, we need to go home and clean up shop. I loved when Big Pussy takes his money back that he gave the bride. He's like, oh, I, I gave them a G. I need to go get that back. I might I might need to travel <laughs> or something like that. And then anyway, all these, all these guys flee the wedding. At the Soprano house, Tony and Carmela are cleaning up. And Carmela's really interesting expression here uh, as Tony's collecting guns and money and they're loading them up to get them out of the house in case they're searched. And she's kind of, she's reluctant, but doesn't really have a, she doesn't have another option of anything else to do here. She, you know, she has to go through this drill. Meadow watches from the stairs. Upstairs, we get this recurring strange fly theme in Anthony Jr.'s room where it's a fake fly clearly for production's sake and he's he's chasing he's chasing this fly. I don't know why they do that. Does anyone have any like deep dive conspiracy thoughts on the fly? Like what what <laughs> what could it really mean? Like this time he's actually using a fly swatter. Like last time he was using a baseball glove. <laughs> Side note, uh spoilers for season 3 of Breaking Bad. Do you guys remember that the most point the most point pointless episode? The most pretentious episode of any TV series ever was Fly in Breaking Bad. I don't remember. Can you can you tell me again? Uh let's let's just do a full outline on that before we finish. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I remember like clips of the fly, but I don't remember the episode. Walt and Jesse spend the whole episode chasing a fly in the laboratory because Walt's, you know, under this guise that, oh, it's contaminated the laboratory, even though they're just all in their street clothes every day in the lab, <laughs> among other contaminants, is one thing. But I read the script for that episode, too, and it started out pretty pretentious as well. Like, they're just like, get ready for, like, writing this in the script. Is it like, get, get ready for the Breaking Bad episode unlike you've ever seen. And I was just like, oh, boy, this is going to be stupid. Anyway, so AJ chases the fly. Downstairs, Tony and Carmela. Tony says he needs to collect Carmela's jewelry because there's no receipts on any of that. He says, oh, don't forget your engagement ring. And she's like, I'm not giving up my engagement ring. This isn't stolen, is it? And of course, Tony says no, but this has got to be a lie. He stole her engagement ring. And we see Big Pussy at his house. He's burning stuff in his grill outside as his, as his wife brings him, brings him things. At Christopher's, Christopher loves movies, so he's trying to write a script. We see from his script pages, though, he's terrible at spelling. He doesn't know how to write or anything. It's a huge struggle for him. His girlfriend, Adriana, tries to cheer him up. She says, I've never seen you work so hard. This is where Chris tells us his motivation. He wants to become someone in the world. He feels disenfranchised by the mob. He killed this guy, Emil, back in the pilot episode and hasn't received the the rewards he thought from that. He hasn't been a made guy. He hasn't climbed the ranks of this family yet. And this is where we get the title of the episode. She calls him her Tennessee Williams. And Tennessee Williams is a famous playwright. Chris gets a call from Georgie, who's the the bouncer secretary at the Bada Bing strip club, who tells him to turn on the TV. We get a clip of all these, the, our mob guys watching the TV where they're talking about the federal indictments. This is where Chris sees 
his friend Brendan, who was killed by Uncle Junior's guy Mikey a couple episodes before. His friend Brendan's on the news. He's called a soldier and associate of the Soprano crime family, or uh, Demio crime family is the name of the crime family. But Christopher isn't mentioned at all, and he's not even getting the notoriety in this case when his friend Brendan, who he brought around, is getting more notoriety than he is. We go to Dr. Melfi's house. Parents are serving dinner. We meet her college-age son and then also her ex-husband. This is where we explore that theme of negative stereotypes of Italian-Americans in film and TV. So they wrote this episode before anything had been released yet. So they realized like, oh, we might get some, some backlash from this TV show. Let's try to address it in one of our early episodes. So they try to. At one point, Dr. Melfi lets slip that She's treating someone who you wouldn't want to, you know, mention a stereotype around and people figure in the her ex-husband figures out, oh, this might be someone connected to the mafia that she's treating. And his take on this is, you know, the man is clearly a sociopath, which I think, Josh, you've already mentioned when we were trying to describe Tony and that sociopaths can't be treated. I mean, Josh, do you think that's a that's a fair take from her ex-husband? I think it's a take from a lazy psychiatrist. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you're a if you're a psychiatrist. I would love to have that patient. It'd be very interesting to work with. But then again, I don't, I don't know if it's so hardwired into your brain that that you can't can't be changed, or or maybe it's too late. Maybe you know you know maybe maybe you aren't born a, a sociopath, but you kind of evolve into one through the choices you make. And once you get so far, you can't turn back. But I don't think it's worth throwing in the towel and not even trying. I guess his claim is like a sociopath cannot be treated at all, which does seem, I mean, Melfi seems like she's doing the right thing. Do you think it's right to, as a psychiatrist, drop a patient that you think is evil or? I mean, multiple times Tony's been like, fuck you. Like, <laughs> it's like, you know, you really need to fill up your own cup and, 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 or, you know, protect yourself above anything else Mm -hmm. so for that reason i think i think it'd be totally fine for her to drop you know a patient that's i mean i would feel afraid you know of tony so you know for i mean he's like kissed her yeah (laughs) so so no but yeah i don't know what their protocol is for you know people being like not necessarily like a prison psychiatrist you know because they probably have more protocol or safety and stuff but I mean, if you're dealing with someone that is threatening, I don't know what therapist protocol is for that. It's a touchy subject. Would you rather treat Tony or Livia as a psychiatrist? Oh, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Livia. She wouldn't She wouldn't try to threaten you or kiss you, Drew. Um, well. <laughs> so are, are people like Tony redeemable? I mean, let's think of the crimes we know that he's committed so far. Clearly extortion of multiple businesses and unions, beating multiple people up and he's murdered people are are what we know of. And he's multiple infidelities. I mean, are people like Tony redeemable, do you think, Josh? Tough to say because he's so far down the line. He'd have to do a pretty radical change. Um, But part of me wants to say no, but then the other part of me wants to be like, well, let's give everybody a chance to try to turn it around. But if I I was looking at him on paper without having seen any of the show, I'd be like, oh, hell no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's my gut. You're like, this guy can't ever come back, but I'm with you is yeah, everyone should, should be given a chance. And, and maybe that's, that's part of this discussion here between Melfi's ex-husband, Richard and, and her. We also see a generation difference between her son, Jason and 
his parents, where his parents are much more concerned about this negative negative stereotype and and film, uh, like The Godfather and Goodfellas are both referenced to. And he's just like, you know, those are great American movies. He doesn't see the issue as much as his parents did. So I thought that's very interesting. And I think that's accurate in a lot of ways. Well, I, I kind of thought of that when you were uh, talking about how maybe the older generation of Italian Americans looks looks at a show like The Sopranos and goes, oh, here we go again. Another negative portrayal of the Italians where mm-hmm. uh, maybe it's because one, they don't watch the show. They just assume or it is just that age gap or age difference where we being millennials and we actually watch the show and enjoy, enjoy it for what it is and don't connect the dots to the stereotypes which I think is just probably cultural growth or, you know, personal growth probably on my own part. But um, no, I don't know. Uh, I, th- I think it's just like the older generation. People can't change, Josh. They're like the characters of Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just the older generation thinking, oh, here we go again. Like every movie of Italians ever mm-hmm. made is with the mob. Um, but I don't know. I don't know how much stock to put into that. I think both points are valid from both ge- generations. I think the farther you remove from something at like, by time as Jason, the son is, you're going to feel probably less sensitive to things like that. But that doesn't mean his parents are wrong for feeling sensitive. Like they've probably experienced much different hardships than he has in terms of Italian Americans. So I think both perspectives could be right in this case. Uh, We go back to Christopher's apartment. His script is terrible. Just like doesn't know how to spell anything. He gets a call from Tony to go pick up some food for the guys. So Chris goes to a bakery and he has to wait a long time. And again, this is just hurting his his ego a customer comes in who wasn't there before but apparently he was there earlier and this just sets chris off tells the customer to leave turns the open sign to close and then threatens the bakery clerk with a gun gets all his pastries and then maybe because this guy doesn't fear him enough maybe just because chris is going through some some stuff right now he shoots the guy in the foot which is a goodfellas reference in a way because uh michael imperioli who plays Christopher was in Goodfellas and he gets shot in the foot by Joe Pesci's character. So I, I really enjoy those references. I love though, when he's leaving though, like he just shoots this guy in the foot. He like flips the sign back to open on his way out the door. <laughs> it's like, huh, you're really, uh, you're really going to take that, take that extra step there. I mean, it's like if either, either of your companies just hired like a 10 year old to have a position. <laughs> <laughs> So Chris arrives to the strip club, the Bada Bing, drops the pastries off. He's super pissed. Tony tries to calm him down. Chris is sent to the bathroom to look for bugs or like wiretaps in the bathroom with the with the bouncer, Georgie. Georgie doesn't realize all the stuff Chris is going through. And he's just saying, oh, no, don't worry, Chris. You'll, you'll be OK with the federal indictments. Like no one knows or cares who you are, which just <laughs> hurts Chris even more. Uh, it's just a funny thing to be heard about. We go to Green Grove Retirement Home. Livia's reading. Uh, there's a knock on the door. <laughs> she says, I'm sleeping immediately. But she finds out it's Carmela and she invites Carmela in. Carmela wants to get Livia out of the out of her apartment so that Tony can go stash the money and guns and everything from his house and hide it in his mom's house here at Green Grove. And again, like what I'm thinking is just like Livia's mob instinct kicks in where, you know, she is this older lady who you wouldn't think is very sinister maybe at first but she just immediately suspects something's wrong when Carmela tries to get out of the house get her out of the apartment and then realizes it's about the federal indictments she says you know Tony's father could take it in stride but he can't so she throws that jab at him but anyway Carmela is able to get eventually get Livia out of the apartment before they drive away Carmela goes buckle your seat ma and she's like I can't find it 
minutes. Oh man, I love every everything she, Livia says. And then Tony goes in and starts stashing all the money and guns into his mom's house. Drew, would you stash all your money and guns in your mom's apartment, or would you find a different spot for it? Uh, well, seeing that I'm living at home right now, probably <laughs> <laughs> I have most of my stuff here. Actually, I have all my stuff here. But if I was Tony Soprano, maybe not. Could you think of a better place for it? No, I'd drop. I'd probably stash it at my my mom's old folks' home. I would. I don't know. I'd like bury a like shipping container in the ground and then like store everything in there. Wouldn't like the obvious spot be for the like, FBI to be like, and you're paying for your mom's nursing home. We're gonna go look there. Like, but it would be harder for them to get a, a search warrant. I think like the judge would be like, "Why? What has this woman done?" I don't. I don't really know what the process is like, but I think it'd be harder. I thought they check yards and things like that. For people who bury stuff i thought that was like the obvious thing well like maybe bury it like under the bridge or something like on public land i don't know i'm getting creative yeah or not apparently it's consideration <laughs> I'd ask, i mean i guess I'd ask siri yeah in therapy uh tony tells dr melfi that he's planning a vacation but doesn't know when or if he'll even go but there's a chance he'll miss some appointments she realizes it must be about the the indictments that are coming down back at chris's apartment very somber scenario for him. Polly, one of the soldiers in Tony's crew, uh, the older guy, comes over. He f- knows that shot Chris shot a kid at the bakery in the foot because word got out with Polly's contact, but finds out like something's going on with Chris. And Chris expresses everything he's been going through. You know, he doesn't just want to survive in life; he wants to thrive. And this is where he reflects on, you know, every character has an arc, but what's my arc? And he talks about. Emil, kid he shot in the first episode, that PTSD is coming back to him. What do you guys think about characters? Is it okay for a show like The Sopranos to maybe have a character that doesn't have that apparent arc who can't learn from his mistakes? Do you think that's frustrating for viewers? Josh, you talked about billions earlier, right? Yeah, that was, I mean, it's still very entertaining, but yeah, very frustrating with regards to billions. But I think in this in the Sopranos, it kind of humanizes it a li- even a little bit more because you you do know, you do know some people, or it is a real life thing where people just get stuck, and for some reason they keep making bad decision after bad decision and can't get their way out of it. And you know, even though they want to, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where like you you help a friend out of a situation, maybe loan them some money or something, and they just go right back into it. It's like <laughs> it's like, dude, come on, like learn. But some people either just for some reason keep making the same mistakes. So it's not frustrating as a viewer in this case? No, because he's not a main character, I think. And it, it's not, it hasn't been so repetitive. So if it does, it, it might become more annoying, but stay tuned. So if it's a main character and it feels repetitive, then it, it might be too annoying. Yeah, that's kind of my uh, standard with it. I really like the deep dive look that The Sopranos does in in the uh, non-main characters. I think that's a cool thing to get to know the backstory of Christopher a little bit more and, and what he's going through. I think it's a, I actually enjoy it more than a series where obvious, I, I think maybe I haven't seen billions, but I think the way you explained it, Josh, I think that would be frustrating if to viewers, when they see a character doing the same exact thing, you're just like, come on, this is the, literally just what happened. I think that's probably incredibly frustrating, but if it's in a different way and the character is built up in the right way over the course of, you know, several episodes and you see that flaw occurring or something i i can get behind it if the character isn't really improving over time i think that's more more similar to people i totally agree yeah i think we're all pretty stuck in our ways i mean (laughs) i mean i've done (laughs) i've read a lot of self-help books and it's just like you know you're putting like hours 
of, you know, I've also gone to therapy. I also meditate daily. It's just like you put like hours into this and then you're like, oh yeah, I'm just like doing the same shit over and over, you know, and and I do really think that people can change, but the amount of like conscious effort and um, how diligent you have to be with like your practices to like even like Mm -hmm. notice, you know, so that you can change, you know, so that you're like subconscious isn't, you're not just like reacting the same way to things. What was the question is like, is it frustrating for the viewers when they're doing this? It, it, It might be frustrating from like a relatable way to being like i want to be able to change but seeing these people do the same stuff over and over it's like oh come on like why don't you learn but you know for me the most obvious one is just like relationship you know it takes like years for me to be like oh this like little you know trigger in in my relationship you know just like how can i like not do this thing that like pisses emily off (laughs) you know like and you just like forget and then you're like doing it again or you know (laughs) what pisses her off the most so many things no um oh building the van i'm just like i'll like try and grab something out of her hand totally unconsciously if if she's if i think she's doing something wrong which you know i'm at the seventh grade level of carpentry and she's probably at the fifth grade level so i will (laughs) i will be like the drills going the wrong way, you know, and just like grab, go to grab it. So, so you're filling in, you're building a van or you have the van built, you're building a home inside the van to yeah. embark on van life. Mm-hmm. So that's been a, that's been a just major, just like, I don't know how many times I've done that where it's like, Oh, I need to be patient and ask. And I see the same things in Tony at uh, Chris's are a little bit more obvious where it's like, you're being a total dipshit. <laughs> And I, I don't mean to say the characters of The Sopranos don't have arcs. They do. It's just a lot more subtle. And I think like you, Drew, I think you're absolutely right. Like humans, it takes so much more to get a human to change. But from what I've known of you, I, I've noticed, you know, very subtle positive changes, I think, in, in you. And I, th- I see you constantly working on self-improvement, too. But as a human, it's just it's just so much harder than most characters we see in TV, with the exception of shows like The Sopranos, I think. I mean, you've also known me over the course of like, what, eight years, you know, it's like, we'll see the arc of The Sopranos over eight years, too. More, more than that, but... <laughs> Is it more than that? Oh, it's like, I think it's like 10. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's true. We will see it. And I and their changes are just much more subtle. And as a viewer, as as human being watching this, it's just so, a much more treat to see you see like when they get stressed or angry they might just lie more often might be their subtlety or they might become more paranoid and so you don't really see it as much as you would see like walter white get angry and drive through traffic and it's like dude no one would do that but it's a much more subtle approach and i i I really enjoy that we go back to the bottom being uh chris is opening up to big pussy about the big or the ptsd that he's experiencing from killing email big pussy isn't very sympathetic he just says you know it, it gets easier and easier the more more people you kill the more people you whack you know who had an arc noah had an arc <laughs> it's just like dude <laughs> i killed a guy i'm trying to get over this <laughs> and you're just like laughing at me <laughs> and i think big pussy says something pretty funny too he's like why would this guy you killed be coming back in your dreams trying to warn you you put a sunroof in his head or something like that like he wouldn't come to warn you but anyway chris gets paranoid he gets georgie the bouncer to help him dig up email to move him because he's paranoid that someone's going to find him in the location that they have so this is the guy that he's killed 
there's a funny moment. Georgie says, is that him when they come across the body? And Chris says, now that would be some fucking coincidence if it wasn't, wouldn't it? Going to back to the Dr. Melfi and her ex-husband storyline. They talk about, again, the shame Italian Americans feel because of the way media portrays them. And again, this theme of, you know, should patients be considered criminals? Should they be beyond redeemable. And I think we all decide at this point from what we know about therapy, which is nothing pretty much, that people should be redeemable to a certain extent. All right, let's take a moment to do our intermezzo real quick. For this week's intermezzo, let's talk about our favorite seasons of TV. So you can have a few options here too. Drew, what are your favorite seasons of TV? Season one of True Detective, season four of The Wire, and... I just looked this up because I think this you wouldn't think of it, but season five of South Park that has <laughs> that has Towley, Scott Tenerman, Tenerman must die. That's a classic. And uh, the entity where Mr. Garrison has that like he gets pissed at the airlines. So he creates that like spinning <laughs> wheel. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I loved like season eight, I think, which has like the fun with weapons. Episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Season. Yeah. There's a couple in the middle that are that were super good. And then and then it really kind of fell off the map with just like shock and just ripping on every celebrity, which I love ripping on celebrities. But every episode was just like ripping on a celebrity. And it's like, OK, season eight also has Woodland uh, Critter Christmas. <laughs> Cartman's a great example of a character who will never learn from his mistakes. No. <laughs> nice. So True Detective season one, Wire season four, South Park season five. Which which South Park season? I didn't watch very many of them, but had the one with they did the Game of Thrones when it was like the PS4. Oh, versus that the was Xbox. later on, I think. That was got to be like 15 or 20 or how many? How I many think they're on 24 there? seasons now. Yeah, because that one was like probably six years ago, seven years ago. Well, considering it was on before The S- Sopranos, like <laughs> now it's 23 seasons of South Park. I mean, it's not like The Simpsons. Yeah. Simpsons is it's on 31. Like... I mean, they're kind of getting Family Guy has 18 seasons. I didn't know that that was still going on. Who's watching new episodes of that? Probably like four year olds. Freaking <laughs> it's it's those Gen Z, <laughs> Gen Z centennials. Gosh, they just they love Game of Thrones and new episodes of South Park. It's just so stupid. Kids these days. I, the other thing about kids these days, just to give my kids these days comment is they do just have access to like stuff that is not appropriate. Like isn't Friends on like Nickel- <laughs> Nickelodeon? It's on Nick at Night. It's on, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> Which starts at like 730. Which starts yeah. at 730, <laughs> you know, like every, you know, whatever Nick at Night is like whatever age group that is, you know, they're like little brothers and sisters are all getting to watch. I I didn't think you would draw the line at friends, Drew, to be honest. I didn't realize that was going to be your (laughs) friends. Friends is my pastime. It was like my intro to TV. So you were that age when you watched it. I guess. I mean, look how you turned out one day when uh, not to deviate too much, but one, one night my mom had teacher parent conferences. She was a third grade teacher. And I remember my dad gets home and she leaves and my dad is like holding something behind his back and we're like, what's that? And he just like swings his arm out and it's uh mortal combat. And we, my brother and I were just like, Oh yeah. And then uh, we, we just like didn't tell my mom. And then my mom was reading a, uh, a father's day card. My brother wrote 
in class. And it was like, I love dad because when mom wasn't home, <laughs> we got to watch Mortal Kombat. I was four years old. <laughs> what's the, I think dads do that everywhere is they like, what's the mental game where they're just like, we're going to do something that mom said was not okay. <laughs> Yeah. Like I did stuff like that with my dad and I have like the fondest memories of it, but my mom would just, my mom was right. Let me, uh, don't get me wrong. She was right, but she'd be like pissed. Just be like, why did you let him watch this? That's freaking awesome. Uh, Josh, what are your favorite seasons of TV? Uh, I got some recency bias for sure on, on this, these first two, but I would say um, season two of Homeland. Uh, I thought that one was really good. And then even though I've kind of, kind of subtly been shitting on it season one of billions was really good um like i said recency bias going back into the short catalog of tv shows that i've actually watched um i agree with drew on a true detective season one even though it's i don't know if you could even call it a season but that that counts that counts i agree with that one i thought that was that was really well done and then uh i really did like westworld season one i thought that was it was just so different and interesting and i mm-hmm. pretty enamored by the plot line but then season two didn't really grip me as much um but season one I, I would even watch that again just to try to get back on track with it but i don't have i don't have the capacity to do that you need to keep us up to date i i watched like the first few episodes of that and i think it starts out slow or, or something but i need to return to it but you got to keep us up to date with how it compares to the sopranos westworld yeah Oh, I can already tell that. I mean, I, I would season by season, I would say probably season one of Westworld has captured my attention more than season one of Sopranos has. But mm-hmm. I don't think I'm going to want to turn away from the Sopranos like I did with Westworld. But, you know, I could I could be wrong. Capturing attention is, is probably different, too, is I mean, we talked about that, too. Like shows just are so much better at capturing attention now. They have to be. Well, they have to be because like the amount of quality content is just insane. And then you watched West Wing too. Are any of those still, do those hold up for you still? I really, I binged that show in, in college. Um, Just all one season. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's a lot of episodes. They're, they're very well written. And uh, Martin Sheen is the president, does a really good job. They're more, what's the term? Is it episodic where there's not so much of like a general plot line that they're following. They're just yeah. individual shows. They definitely do have more season long plot lines, but they're pretty thin. But I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I thought it was definitely some, fictional history but they kind of went into certain aspects of the presidency that were real you know i would look things up later be like is, is that actually how it's done and lo and behold it really is and uh i, oh, I, nice. en- I enjoyed that aspect and just the writing the writing is is really good i think it's aaron sorkin um who, yeah. who also did newsroom on hbo which that actually had a really good first season too yeah i really enjoyed west wing and i i think most people would i think it won, a, won some bunch of emmys too i mean it did it was like i've talked about it before but like the writing emmys are pretty much just like three or four sopranos nominations for different episodes and like a west wing would sneak in there or something so i mean that was the contender for writing against the sopranos at least during its run and and tv was more episodic back then and we kind of see it i think with the sopranos like a lot of the episodes sort of work as standalone episodes which i love about them they'll have like a beginning middle ending but then there's a lot more season arcs as they as they go my I, I gotta say true detective season one that was one of the best seasons of tv i think i thought about naming game of thrones season one that when i first saw that that was extraordinary i just absolutely loved it it's my favorite season of game of thrones for sure i think drew you mentioned like they just all get worse after that one it's like two then three then four <laughs> and then i'll say i'll say i agree with you drew season four of the wire also i'm going to throw in season three that's one of my favorite seasons. Seinfeld, I looked up the episodes. Seasons five and seven are my favorite seasons of Seinfeld. 
How far are you in your rewatch, Josh Seinfeld? Uh, me and Sarah are very streaky. We'll watch like six episodes in like two days and then take like a week off. But we just got done with, I think we're in season, we might be in season four. I don't know how well you know the episodes, but we just got done with the uh, the bet. the, <laughs> the Oh, the contest. The contest, yeah, the, the masturbation. Didn't she accidentally watch that with her dad? She did, uh, <laughs> but, but, but we... But, <laughs> <laughs> And side note, uh, her dad is very conservative, like still to this day, she's, you know, 28. And if there's like a sex scene on TV, he'll be like, oh, God, no, close your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so she was visiting her folks and, and she goes, oh, I know the perfect thing to watch. You know, it's very family. I mean, not super family friendly, but it's not like crude. Yeah. She, ev- everyone watched Seinfeld. So yeah. she pops on that episode. <laughs> and Drew, oh, no. Did we watch that episode, Drew? No, I don't it's, think so. It's where the four main characters make a bet to see how long, who can make it the longest without masturbating is the premise of the episode. <laughs> but it's, it's of course, uh, network TV, so they can't use the word masturbation. So they're just using like euphemisms throughout the whole episode. Like, are you still king of your castle? I'm Lord of the Manor. It's just so good. <laughs> poor Sarah. Poor, poor Mr. McCutcheon. Uh, everyone involved. There was like that British show. The Office. I, I'm no, never mind. You know, I'm not. Uh, I'm just not scumbag. No, Fleabag. Fleabag. That's right. Yeah, I watched the first episode with Emily's mom, and it's just like, <laughs> just like. I think I watched half that episode. Well, did you watch the first half? Yeah. I don't know. I feel pretty comfortable, like with that kind of stuff. It was like, well, I loved that show. That's not something you'd want to watch with with any parent at all. Absolutely not. <laughs> Um, but we we loved that sorry and then the seasons one and two of Mad Men I I absolutely loved as well all right let's get back into the episode so Christopher goes to pick up Tony and Tony flips out on Chris he sees all these signs of Chris seemingly wanting to get caught you know he shot this guy in the foot he went and dug up emailed this guy that he killed a few months before he dug him up to move him and so he says Chris has cowboy-itis he just wants to get caught but something Chris says, Chris says the regularness of life is getting too hard for him. And that's why I think a switch goes off in Tony and he starts to realize Chris is depressed and starts sympathizing with him. So I, I thought this was just a really good moment is a great scene between these two because they're both saying so much without actually saying it like they're lying to each other. These are two horribly depressed people that have to act as these macho guys all the time. Chris says things like, you know, sleeping is the only thing he he still enjoys. And there's no other show I've watched that has explored a theme like this to this level, I think. And, and Tony tries to act, you know, tough, but says, you know, things like, maybe you got a serotonin problem. Tony asks if Chris ever thinks about an emotion shooting himself. Chris immediately says, fuck no. And I'm always thinking back, like characters are in this show are always lying. And I just think Tony, or I think Chris is lying, and I think Tony's lying, and they both are just at the level of depression. So I think that is just a really important thing. And then, but in order to combat this, what Chris has to do is immediately make fun of people who have been that depressed. And you get this moment where they're both, they both like try to laugh it off and they laugh at these, oh, these much weaker people who who go down that road, but not us. And I thought that was just so poignant. I also thought it was pretty relatable. You know, haven't you ever been with like your friend and be like, oh man, like kind of have an unpopular opinion where someone's like, you know, I, I actually kind of like pineapple on my pizza or something. And you, you kind of like throw, <laughs> throw it out there and be like, 
dude, like pineapple on your pizza? Like, what do you, what do you think about that? Like, oh, disgusting. Like, yeah, right. Like who would do that? <laughs> or like, Hey, like, what do you think of like Cheryl? Like she's kind of like, I've heard some, I heard, like Joe said she was cute. Like, I, what do you think? Like, oh no. And you're like, yeah, no way. <laughs> What'd you guys think of season eight of Game of Thrones? <laughs> no. <laughs> kind of like broaching the subject on the service level to see how he would react. Cause like, you know, if he, if Christopher was like, I don't know, I've kind of thought about it. I was like, oh man, you should totally, totally do therapy. Like it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah tony tony can't tell him that he's in therapy but he's like trying to to beat around the bush i mean depression is so so prevalent in our society and something that should be talked about and brought to the forefront and these guys have just been trying to swallow it and keep that in and be these like macho masculine these macho masculine dudes and it's just it's just so well done i think with the sopranos at the Soprano house, uh, FBI agents arrive. We meet Agent Harris, one of the agent, FBI agents. He's the nicer one that's kind of leading it. I thought maybe a pitfall. Tony opens the back door without really checking who it is. Like he might know it's the FBI. I don't know. But it's just like, dude, anyone could whack him at any moment. You got to be more careful, Tony. In therapy, we see Dr. Melfi sees Tony isn't there. She realizes he's on his quote unquote vacation. At the Soprano house, the FBI agents are doing a search. One agent who is named Grasso. So they realize he's Italian. He breaks a bull. Uh, Tony gets angry because, oh, he's, you know, going against his own people, which is, you know, a ridiculous, ridiculous notion, I think, or just outdated maybe. So later at dinner, Tony expresses how pissed off he is about this, you know, Italian agent going after his own people. They talk about all these prominent Italians, you know, Michelangelo, Antonio Meucci, who invented the telephone. Uh, Frank Sinatra, they mentioned just is is that telephone story true? I looked it up and it looked like uh, Antonio Meucci did like have a lot of the original plans for a type of telephone. I don't know where maybe other people were trying to invent the same thing. I don't know if Alexander Graham Bell took that from him. Um, so I don't know. But I okay. did. It, it does look like uh, spaghetti came from china though when like tony's just like no that that's that can't be true <laughs> why would people who eat with sticks invent something they have to eat with a fork <laughs> interesting logic tony uh interesting logic but you can eat spaghetti with chopsticks yeah has he never seen like uh like eating pho Pro- yeah. probably not actually <laughs> he's probably never eaten pho. yeah never <laughs> tony's therapy session dr melfi explains to him that he'll have to pay for the session that he missed and i think maybe josh you said this earlier too but or we all talked about it. It's just, he becomes a child, right? He just, he has like a really angry freak out on Melfi. And she, I think she handles it really well. She says she doesn't like being made to feel scared, but he throws money on the ground and, and insults her. He's just, he's just a child who can't control his emotions is, is how I took it. I thought it was kind of interesting too, because if the tables were reversed, Tony would totally charge. A hundred percent. You know? <laughs> In the business he's in, he's got to understand that more than anyone, I would think. Yeah. I guess that's just an example of his contradictions. At Greengrove Retirement Community, Uncle Junior is visiting Livia. And this is where Livia, or first it should be mentioned, Uncle Junior believes that there could be a bad apple in his crew. So he does think there's a rat in his crew. Livia tells Junior, Tony's seeing a psychiatrist. And Junior has the same reaction Livia has uh last episode it might have been where he just has her repeat herself and he's stunned and do you guys think there's a rat in the crew josh i don't know i I never i never thought about it um before they mentioned it um i just thought you know when the fbi was uh tracking them at the funeral it's like you guys aren't being that secretive about your operations um i mean when half the town knows that you're 
involved in the for example tony i mean who was it a tony's a son's friend friend's dad mm-hmm. with the axe in the in the nursery um flower shop it's like yeah. every, everybody knows he's involved somehow and so mm-hmm. it's like you guys aren't really hiding it so of course you're going to be investigated but you know to what details maybe there is a rat if i had to guess who it would be i, I wouldn't even know where to where to begin maybe, maybe i could see well i was gonna say maybe junior just for like self-preservation kind of like mm-hmm. the departed um yeah but if if not junior then maybe junior's little assassin boy can't remember his name mikey yeah i could see him being a rat i think you brought up a, a good point is yeah everyone knows the figures in the mob they know who all their targets are but actually getting evidence against them enough to like lock them up all these people deserve life sentences um (laughs) sentences upon sentences probably so like getting that exact evidence is very difficult so that's where you would need a rat or someone to catch something on a wire or someone to testify against someone and that that's the case in in real life too livia mentions when she reveals that tony's seeing a psychiatrist she does not want repercussions is what she tells junior do you think no repercussions was like code to take out dr melfi I didn't get that from it. I I thought she was just lying. I thought she was just being like sneaky, not sne- you know what I mean? Like trying to cover her own. She's just trying to be uninvolved by by covering her own is what you're saying. Yeah, I think she's trying to stir stir things up and maybe have, you know, Tony get whacked or in trouble or but just wants to like cover her own. Josh, to your question, if someone talks to a therapist, I don't think they would see the therapist as the one that's to blame here. But that said, you know, Livia says she doesn't want repercussions. Who knows what Uncle Junior would be thinking that in that case. He's pretty stunned. Yeah, because I didn't really know. I was like, huh, does she want Melfi killed? Does she want Tony killed or stopped? I don't know. Is is it kind of like a foreshadowing phrase? Mm-hmm. We'll see. So Chris's mom calls Chris, tells him that his name is in the paper. He jumps out of bed. We go to the Melfi family therapy session. So it's Dr. Melfi. Uh, her college age son, Jason, her ex-husband. And again, they're talking about if Dr. Melfi should continue seeing this patient. They don't know it's Tony Soprano, but they know it's somebody in the mafia. And, you know, especially after the way he, Tony had freaked out on Melfi the last meeting. And she digs her heels in. She, whatever her reason is, whether she gets the excitement out of it, she has like curiosity. She feels, she feels it is her job to help someone like this, whatever that reason is, she, I guess, resists what they're asking. The last scene of the episode, Chris goes to get the Star Ledger, uh, which is the newspaper. He scans through it and sees that his name is is listed in the in the paper, gets excited, pays and takes all the newspapers. And I, I got to say, I, I love, I think The Sopranos does so well with the last scene in each episode. It, it ties it up. It excites me. I feel like Okay, that that storyline for what it was is has a bow on it to some extent. It's obviously going to grow, but and then we're moving on to the next episode. I think it's just really well done here. Okay, let's get into our pitfalls and our Capola criteria here. So this is what I had. We talked about it again, but this conspiracy theory behind Anthony Jr. always chasing a fly in his room, and it's just so fake. I don't know why that happens. Also at dinner, Anthony Jr mentions alexander graham bell but based on like how good of a student he is i don't think he would know that alexander graham bell invented the telephone (laughs) and on that note too i think that whole scene was too self-aware or too on the nose where they're at dinner and tony's mentioning all these um 
notable Italians throughout history. I could have done without that scene. I think it was kind of like explaining a joke where it was too obvious. I think the the show does better. Like we already had these on the nose scenes with Dr. Melfi and her family. Like another one, I think was too much for it too. So I would I would have cut that whole scene out. You guys behind that, or do you guys really want that scene in there? I would have rather kept that scene and just cut out all of Dr. Melfi's family involvement. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much is going to evolve down that storyline, but it seemed pretty pointless besides knowing that, okay, she has a son and an ex-husband. I mean, maybe that is leverage for the mob to use to get her to shut up or something, but I don't know. I, I, I yeah, I don't think it was really, really important. And then that weird scene with like their family counselor. I, I totally agree. That was an awkward scene. I think we could have done without, without two of the, like there was the dinner with the Melfi family where she's just talking to her ex-husband and then the therapy scene, we could have done without those last two. Just keep the dinner, maybe, if you want. It was still a little obvious, but I get why they had it. We talked about maybe it was a pitfall that Tony's hiding his money and guns at Green Grove. I think that was okay. I think that was probably his best option at the time. Um, I mentioned I don't think Tony should have just opened the back door to his house for the FBI agents without looking to see if they were there. You know, people could be trying to whack him. That was all I had. Did you guys have any other pitfalls? I would disagree about the uh, family counselor. He's very mm-hmm. nonchalant. <laughs> At first, I was like, oh, he actually has some good points. And then he just goes on his tangent, like his relative was a driver for a mobster. And, and it's like, all right. How much how much money are we paying per minute for a year? <laughs> yeah, could have done without that. Anything else? I don't know how, how much of a pitfall or, or kind of unbelievable, but I guess it goes with Christopher's actions where he he shoots the donut boy in the foot. It's like, come on. I mean, like when you're under the heat of the moment with the cops closing in, the feds closing (laughs) in, you're really going to be brandishing a weapon, shooting a kid in the toe. Like that just increases the spotlight. But I've been making these comments for every episode, it seems like about Christopher's behavior. So, (laughs) so it's pretty constant. So maybe, maybe I'm the one who needs to just learn that he's an idiot. Well, there is a point where if someone becomes too much of an idiot in a show, it's very frustrating for the viewer. I think maybe Jesse Pinkman kind of reached this level in early Breaking Bad season. I, I saw them as I, I see them as kind of similar. Ooh, that's a that's a good comparison. It's just like, dude, why are you doing this again? Regarding brandishing the weapon, again, Christopher is extreme, but that might have been too far. I'm not sure. I was okay with it because it was like a meta uh, Goodfellas reference because that actor gets shot in the foot in Goodfellas. So I, I liked that, but... Wait, the same, like, Donut Boy? No, no. So Michael Imperioli, who plays Christopher, is the one that's shot in the foot in Goodfellas. Oh, okay. I was like, he must have been, like, two years old. <laughs> I, I think of Jesse and, and Christopher as similar. Do you think one is more frustrating than the other? It's hard to say because we know... I, I know how Jesse grows and turns out, mm-hmm. but... And plus, that's yeah, Jesse you- Jesse's character, right? Like, he's just a a loser nobody cooking meth where Christopher's trying to climb the ranks. So it's like, dude, shape up or ship out type thing. Totally. And Christopher is much more evil at the start. Like he has a much different path to go. I mean, Jesse like hadn't spoilers for breaking bad, but hadn't killed anyone at the start of the series was just kind of like a low level dude who was uh, cooking meth. Let's get into our best comedy, best drama awards for this episode. Mention there were no there were no deaths in this episode, so no zero body count for it. But best comedy moments, 
I like the last scene where Chris just buys all the newspapers. He goes in. I love how he like pays for the one, sees his name, and then gets like really excited and him slinking off to the car. I thought that was really good too. For me, it was when Carmela comes in to take Livia out of the like I, I'm so predictable at this point, but like when Carmela first knocks on the door and Livia tells Carmela she's sleeping because she thought it was someone else at the door when she's clearly reading. And then her whole discovering Livia discovering what's going on. Oh, something must be wrong to Livia getting in the car and can't find her seatbelt. I thought it was just all all hilarious. How about you, Josh? I'm a big one liner guy. I like the uh you know who had an arc? <laughs> Noah had an arc. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh I just I don't know, for some reason I kinda laughed at uh when Christopher gave like a laptop to, or a computer as a wedding gift, he's like, I read a great review on this, bought, bought myself the same one. And then later it turns out like he stole it. And I don't know. So that was pretty funny. <laughs> I, I, oh man, that's, that's really good. Also note to Christopher when he's struggling through the screenplay, he's just like, oh, I thought the computer would do most of the work. <laughs> <laughs> I bought a screenplay program. <laughs> uh, these younger generations just think someone's going to do all the work for them these days. Yeah, or he's like, I'm writing the dialogue first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> managed, managed uh, is spelling. Uh, those are great. I, I also shout out to the when the mob guys first learn about the indictments at the wedding and are pulling their wives and families out of there and Big Pussy takes his money back. I thought that was a great moment. Uh, best drama sequence. I'll go first on this. This is a scene I didn't notice really the first time I watched The Sopranos, but now it's just really... Now that I see the show in its full scope, it really sticks with me. But it's when Tony is in the car with Chris and realizes that Chris is depressed. And they have this moment where they have to lie to each other, but really are just so hurt inside. And it's I thought it was just a very poignant scene. Yeah, Chris goes, I'm no mental midget. Yeah. Just like a, a cutting comment to to both of them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, to Tony too. And it's like, oh my gosh. You almost feel bad for them. But then you realize they're they're sociopaths. Then you realize that you hate Chris. <laughs> <laughs> what was your best drama scene, Drew? I like the opening scene. It's very bizarre. Oh, the dream. Yeah, I thought the dream was really good. And then uh, you know, I, I kind of liked the the dream being the most bizarre and and strange and kind of trying to make sense of it. And then and then the the final scene not being the most laugh out loud, but but definitely comical. I think one thing that definitely makes the Sopranos is different, at least from season one of other shows is like the production quality, like that dream sequence. And you kind of think back previously to where like Tony was having his dream sequence. Like they're so what, what type of budget are they working with here? Or like nowadays oh, interesting. shows have, you know, almost depending on its success, you know, like million dollar budget for each episode. But I just mm-hmm. thought that was kind of, kind of interesting. I guess that makes, that makes sense. It didn't, it didn't bother me at all, but, yeah, now that you say it, thinking about dream sequences now. I mean, how many how many times have you seen like that like floating, you know, where Chris is like floating through the the restaurant, you know? Yeah. I I liked it too, Drew. I think I mean, it was low budget, but from the first shot of the whole thing, it him at the table, I don't know, that was just like a beautiful shot and it's just so clear and you could realize something weird was going on. You know, I think I ripped on a couple dreams earlier, but the dreams in the Sopranos get to a level I think that's just really really fascinating to go down that road josh what's your best drama sequence or scene or one-liner uh <laughs> i'll go drama scene i think when uh 
Christopher and, and Polly are talking. I think that's really well done and, and, and kind of sheds light on, you know, they're kind of just talking about life and what's life's purpose. I, I thought it was pretty deep for uh, an interaction between those two characters, especially in, you know, they're talking about arcs and Christopher's trying to model his life after characters that he sees in the movies, which is so unreasonable, but also pretty relatable. I mean, like how many times mm-hmm. do you see like an inspirational movie or, or even like a show that you're like, oh, you know, I should probably be more like that guy, but it's like, they're fictional. They're, they're able to make these transformations on a whim because a writer put pen to paper. So I thought it was very well done. If you could name one, who's your favorite character from TV, Drew, who would you say? Not including any of the, one in the Sopranos. Stan, Stan's dad. <laughs> Randy. Randy. I, I don't know. Randy's pretty good as far as like a comedy person, not a comedy person. Come back to me. Let me think about it for a second. Josh, who's your favorite? That's really tough. It's like, is it someone I want to like hang out with or is it someone I, or is it somebody I would just like want to watch? Someone you just enjoy watching. Maybe, I mean, maybe Tyrion Lannister. I mean, he's just so entertaining. Yeah. Tyrion Lannister was great. He is. I think it was season two where he was the, uh, spoilers for season two of Game of Thrones, uh, where he was the hand of the king and he was like really playing the the political game. He was just so fun to watch. I really liked, uh, Omar in yeah i was gonna say omar yeah wire you know he's like a he's like a professional dancer (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know that the actor obviously yeah (laughs) interesting so drew do you like a character like walter white who has a a visible arc over the course of the show or someone like don draper who has a much more subtler arc i probably like the more subtle subtle arc but that's just my style of yeah movie and you know i I like the the subtleties josh how about you i think i like the subtleties more i mean (laughs) thinking of game of thrones you look at a why am i blanking on the name um the dragon lady uh daenerys yeah her arc is like steady 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 whoa like (laughs) sharply changes (laughs) screws screws loose (laughs) absolutely she spoilers for game of thrones but (laughs) She does have an extremely subtle arc throughout it. She's kind of toughened up through all these these hardships she faces. And then the writers just wanted to wrap things up quickly. So um, we got the season eight. Yeah, I agree. And I'm, I'm biased. And I think maybe I'm maybe I'm directing you guys that way. But it, I think that the subtleties and characters are so much more like life. I like watching a character who's insecure. I like watching them lie more or try to deceive people more. And that's how we know they're more insecure. When they do something extreme, I, I get taken out of the show more often. And I think I think The Sopranos does it so well. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's so human nature. Like think of somebody who, you know, is trying to lose weight or has a, a, a drug problem, right? Like they'll go, they'll string together so many good days and then they just, you know, if, if they're, they're an alcoholic, they, you know, they start drinking again, either, even if it's for two nights and then it's like, oh, come on, man, like you were doing so well. And then it's like back to square one. It's like, it's so hard to create lasting change 100 percent. and we we go through there's going to be a drug addict and someone trying to lose weight in later seasons of the sopranos so we have that to look forward to josh we'll see what happens to those characters all right i'll stay tuned (laughs) so that's our show thanks everyone for listening Um, if you want to join our fight against recency bias leave us a review that really helps us helps others find our show and we want to keep doing this because we we really enjoy it 
If you have any questions for us, you can find our podcast as well as some original scripts I've written at jaredbackins.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. Um, I All those bad things I said about Twitter earlier, I didn't really mean them, but it's Josh hasn't seen the Sopranos on Twitter. Drew, where can we find you? Uh, on Instagram at Drew Draws and on my website, riverstoseastickers.com. Josh, if you could be a character in the Sopranos, who would it be? I would probably be Anthony Jr. just playing N64 all day. <laughs> yeah. Not getting into any, or getting into fights, but then kids just pay you pay you later and they don't want to fight you anymore because who your dad is yeah and I'm, you know i'm not looking to get whacked so <laughs> all right right on guys thanks so much uh really excited to watch the next episode and chat about it with you guys we'll, we'll see you next time see you next time adios